Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Digital Worship. I'm Pastor John Carolis here at Shepherd of the Desert. And as we step into a transitional Sunday in the church calendar in the year ahead of us, we recognize this Sunday as, as you can see behind me, Transfiguration Sunday. This is an important moment in the narrative of the scriptures. This is an important part of the season of the, of, I should say, the, the calendar of the church year, because this marks the time where we are now sort of officially looking forward toward well, Good Friday and Easter, the passion of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. And the way that we acknowledge the significance of that shift in attention away from the epiphany of Jesus born in Bethlehem, the recognition of him, uh, worshipped and, and uh, honored by the wise men, is the, remembering the moment when Jesus took a couple of disciples up to the top of a mountain and revealed his glory to them. So we'll be looking at Mark chapter 9 today as we read through these scriptures. Uh, we'll not only hear the way that Jesus applied it to his disciples, but then also we're going to dig into what it means for you and I today. For Mark chapter 9, six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why do the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the Son of Man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they chose to abuse him, just as the scriptures predicted. There is actually quite a bit of depth to this particular reading. As a children's Bible story that we teach to our preschoolers over at uh, Shepherd Preschool, uh, it's simple. It seems like there's really a, a general direct order of events, sequence of events, and that's just kind of the takeaway. Jesus is the Son of God. God the Father appears makes Jesus shine with heavenly glory. The disciples see it and they head back down the mountain. But the, uh, the interesting thing is the details that are included in here, first of all, tie this revelation of Jesus' glory, this moment where his heavenly position, his authority over creation is made apparent through his visible appearance. That moment is tied directly to how God appears to his people in glory, in thunder, in clouds, in a booming voice, in bright light as he was uh, descended upon Mount Sinai back in the book of Exodus, when God was leading his people by the hand of his servant Moses from slavery in Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. And you'll notice Moses himself appears on the mountaintop with Jesus. The other prophet is Elijah. And Elijah is mentioned by Jesus at the end of this reading. He says, the scriptures have testified that Elijah must come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Now, this is a metaphor, if you will. This is a prophecy of the kind of the second Elijah, who is carrying on in the spirit of Elijah, the, the work that he was given. Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. 
And so there's these rich references to the Old Testament text, rich references to the, the prophecies about who the Messiah is, what his role would be. And one of those roles, one of the uh, functions of the Messiah in this case, is a revelation of God's glory. Jesus is the one who makes God knowable to the people that he interacts with. And so the disciples are dealing with a number of issues here. And, and I don't like to beat up on the disciples too much because, frankly, if it was you or I in the text rather than one of them and 2,000 years later they were reading about the stories that we created as we followed Jesus, I don't think that uh, we would have performed much better in recognizing who Jesus was and the significance of his work. So anyways, the disciples react rather uh, reasonably, I would say, rather uh, relationally toward how we might react because Peter exclaims, oh my gosh, this is great. Let's commemorate this with some memorials, some structures, some shelters for you guys. And then the, the, the writer of the gospel, John Mark, he gives us this little insight. He says, um, he said this, Peter said this because he didn't really know what else to say uh, and they were all terrified. Now, if you or I were in face-to-face contact in this earthly life with the majesty and glory of Jesus' heavenly revelation, I think we would be pretty confused. I think we would be at a loss for words, and I think we would probably be terrified as well. And there's actually something to that. Because in this life, we we have to deal with the issue of blindness. And I mean that in two ways. There's sort of a double blindness that we all experience. First of all, we live in a world that is dark darkened and made mysterious because of evil and its presence through the work of our sin and the sin of other people in the world. This world is not meant to make sense to everyone. It's not meant to be totally intuitive. It's not meant to hold meaning in and of itself because we have corrupted it through our actions and through our decision-making and those of our, uh, our ancestors. This has contributed to a darkening of the world in which case life doesn't often make sense. We have to experience suffering. We see hurting all across the world. Things don't always make sense to us. We can't see clearly into the future. We don't understand what the next era of humanity will do, what they will accomplish, what they will go after. We hardly understand the the era that we're in, let alone those that have come before us. The world is dark. And it's dark because of the things, well, we have done as a human race. The way that we treat each other. The way that we ignore and have run from God. The way that we have embraced our own selfish desires, oftentimes hurting the people around us. We're blind because the world is a dark place. We're also blind because so often we cover our eyes with our own two hands. We become blind because of the limits that we place on ourselves. You and I not only are caught up in the sin that we've inherited, but we're caught up in the sin that we generate and create and participate in in our own lives. Severing relationships, becoming judgmental, getting defensive. And that's just to name a few of the many, many ways in which we go against God's plan for us. We read his word and then we go and participate in some terrible activity. We we, we recognize his instruction to love our neighbors and then the next moment we're getting frustrated at somebody because we don't feel like we're being treated fairly. We're told to be patient and yet we grow impatient even with those God has placed closest to us. We live in a dark world and we cover our own eyes. The world is filled with sin and darkness and evil and yet then also we participate in that. We cover our eyes and we become blind, not only because of the darkness around us, but because of the darkness we place on ourselves. And so when darkness becomes, uh, when, when darkness comes into contact with the light, uh, the darkness doesn't know what to do. It scatters is oftentimes the way it's poetically described. Light shows up, darkness scatters, darkness flees, darkness runs away. In other words, it's a little bit terrified. And so we get this picture of these men imbued in darkness, right? These disciples, even though they're following Jesus, They don't quite understand who he is, and they still struggle with the same sin that you and I deal with. 
And then Jesus takes him up to a mountain. The father reveals Jesus in his glory. He brings alongside him Moses and Elijah, these men who had proclaimed what the Messiah would be. And God was giving some insight to the disciples to help them understand who Jesus was. He gives them this imperative. This is my beloved son. I love him. Listen to him. And their response is fear and confusion. And then Jesus tries to explain it to them like, Listen, uh, the Son of Man, this is, this is something you shouldn't share about until the Son of Man has been risen from the dead. In other words, uh, don't share this with the other disciples. Don't share this with the people that you're going to be spreading the gospel with until you've seen the gospel become real. Until you've seen the promises of God prove themselves reliable. Until you see the Son of God vindicated as the authority over heaven and earth because he has been risen from death itself. Now, of course, the disciples, as we read through the Gospel of Mark, don't ever really grasp that idea. Several times after this, Jesus mentions the passion narrative. He says, look, I'm going to have to turned over. I'm going to have to be turned over to evil men. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be shamefully treated. I'm going to be put to death. But on the third day, I will be raised from the dead by the power of the Father. Now, They didn't really grasp that. I don't know that I would have either. In fact, it's only by the work of the Spirit in my heart that I can cling to the promises God has given me, even now, after the fact. And yet I give thanks to God for that faith that he has placed in my heart. And I give thanks to him for the faith God has placed in your heart. Because you can hear this story and recognize the majesty, the impact, the meaning of what it means for us to have a relationship with that Son who is revealed to be the ruler of heaven and earth. With that son who was revealed to be the one that the prophets testified about. And Jesus' own words at the end of this story help us remember that the word of God is reliable. Who is the only guide that can lead us through this dark world as we cover our eyes with the darkness of our own actions? Only Jesus, the one who bears the light. Only Jesus, the one who can step into a dark world, bringing the light with him and rescuing those who have been lost to darkness. Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus is the one who accomplishes that. And so this next season of ministry here at Shepherd is six or seven weeks dedicated toward a focus on that saving work, the cross. What does it mean that the king of glory, the king of creation, the ruler of eternity, stepped into this earthly realm, was turned over to evil men, died a terrible death, but was raised to life? His death paid the price of our sin. What does it mean? How does it work? We'll be spending time in texts that reference that particular story. We'll be focusing on what it means to be saved by the work of Jesus. Because that work that has saved us also changes us. And God's ongoing work in you and me through the power of his Holy Spirit is transformation. We're becoming more like him in the way we behave. We're becoming more trusting toward him in the things that we believe. We're becoming more uh, whole by the healing that he works in us. And he even sends us out into the world and says, I have a calling just for you when you're transformed by my word. The transfiguration of Jesus, the change in how he appears, reveals to us that he is who he says he is, that he is who the Father says he is, and he is who the Spirit helps us to see and say who he is as well. Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, the chosen Son of God, the one who can save his people from their sins. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope that God blesses you and keeps you as you go about your routine, as you go about your calling. And I pray that you would be faithful in your work and attentive to God's uh, promptings and movement in your life. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.